The following podcast is a part of the Spin Studio Network. He's one of Australia's leading brand experts with a quick wit, and she's a successful business owner with a pop culture addiction. Together, they're the Spin Life. Whether you're a digital marketing novice, an aspiring influencer, or starting your own business, they're here to answer your questions. Welcome to The Spin Life. I'm Courtney and here with me is Sam Mangan and we are the brother and sister team behind one of Australia's leading brand agencies, Spin & Co. And today we have a guest, which I think is actually our first guest of season three, I think. Is that we're right? Seasons. We, we're in know. season three. That is correct. I'm just oh, checking. Okay. We haven't had any other guests this season. No, I don't think so. But today's guest is someone that is a friend of ours and he is... Involved in a startup. It's flown in so exclusively for this podcast. <laughs> so we're going to talk to Hello. Oliver today, and he's going to talk to us all about startups, getting investor money, staffing, all that kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. And all the fun um, stuff. So Oliver is yeah. CEO of Archer, uh, which is a fintech startup out of Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, changing the way people bank. Mm-hmm. Aspiring neo bank. So That's digital right. only bank, mobile only on your phone, all that kind of stuff, all that exciting stuff that all neo banks are doing. And Oliver yeah. went to school with Sam since what age? 12. 12. So He's got to long term friendship. Long term. It's been a while. Yeah, spin a while. Yeah. Fuck, we're old, hey. No man, it's disgusting. Jesus, yeah, bit of background. Oliver also is a lawyer. Yeah, correct. Sam and Oliver, but no real experience together. in this space. No, not really. No, my law work was more kind of corporate. Um, oh, like fundraising generally, but yeah. not for this sort of thing. But regulation friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. ASIC stuff, corporate stuff, mergers and acquisitions things. Yeah, yeah. That's that sort of stuff. Public markets, though, so not non, no private real work. Yes, and um, took the big leap. Sort of when would that have been? That would have been. Well, it was kind of like a like a half stepped leap. So it was, was like yeah. I left. I was working in Brisbane at a law firm, and then I got seconded to a client. Went back to the law firm, and then left and went overseas for a year. And then when I came back, I moved out to Melbourne. Not really sure what I wanted to do, um, and then ended up working in some tech businesses, doing um, cosec consulting sort of stuff yeah and um and then moved on to start my own thing off the back of all that sort of stuff yeah well very and still do some of it some of it still some of the consulting work so with archie you guys said some words yeah like, like explain them because everyone understands all those words that well, let's hear a real basic term for what is archer neobank what does that mean so basically um you know banks are obviously ba- built on a very um, antiquated infrastructure um the idea now is that with the rise of you know new technology and the way that people are approaching really the world in general through their mobile and being mo- mobile first and whatnot a lot of people don't you know use checks anymore that's not really a thing people don't walk into branches very often we can do so much through these new smart atms the idea is that things are moving more digital and so this is basically building a bank with that in mind being digital first as opposed to being a bank and then trying to i guess mold your existing antiquated processes and systems to have a digital sort of footprint and yeah and more millennial type I yeah. mean, of course it is because they're digital first, but at the same time, there is a, an enormous group of people who are, you know, not in that millennial market, which I think that cutoff is around about the 30... I'm a millennial and I'm 33, so it must be 34, 35, I think. Yeah, something like that. Um, there's a lot of people who are in that 35 plus demographic who are digital first. Yeah. Some more so than even people younger. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think I think that's well put. I think that's a good description of it. It's um, it's basically doing all the things that banks could do by just using your phone and being digital only, but they really can't do because they have such complicated spaghetti type infrastructure and mm. and also bigger banks don't don't really care about um, 
like they're not incentivized to build this sort of thing, right? They already have a very no. successful business model offering mortgages and personal loans and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, so there's no reason for them to build a really cool transaction account that um, does all the things that people want their phone banking platform to do. Yeah. Um, I think it's also a fair thing to say that a lot of people don't know what they want their transaction account to do. Yeah. I think a lot of people approach their bank um, and their finances in that respect uh, quite um, mundanely, if you will. Like, I don't think anyone's opening their bank account and is excited to be in there. Exactly. There's no information that you care about that's in there. Nine times out of ten, people are opening it being like, oh, what was the damage over the weekend? And they open it like, fucker. Yep. You know, it's more about that, I think, than it is a genuine interest in, you know, understanding your finances better. And that's something that um, we hope to change. Yep. Yep, definitely. Fab. So I guess now we're talking a bit about um, that startup life. Um, obviously, we have, you know, discussed starting this business before and, and many of the other businesses that I'm involved in, but um, they've never really been a true startup per se. You know, I mean, all of our businesses we've been able to start with, you know, very little money, if not no money. Um, whereas a business like Archer has obviously started, um, you know, to an extent there was a lot of groundwork that was done without any funding mm-hmm. um, on the side, et cetera. But then to take any you real so steps, you, yeah. know, you needed cash in the bank. Yep. Um, and so how long ago was the fundraise? The initial the very first dollar into the business was yep. probably, uh, it would have been the first quarter of 2018. So March-ish of 2018. March 2018. And so how do you go about getting money from people? Well, it depends what your business model is, I guess. Like if you're like us, right? So we're, because what we're doing is like you need to get a reasonable amount of money and you need to buy some expensive pieces of equipment, like infrastructure and put them all in place and then employ people and all that kind of stuff. You really need kind of like a reasonable chunk of money to go and do that. And, you know, to get that big chunk of money, people need to have confidence that you're going to be able to get the rest of the money because it's not going to be the last time that you go and raise money. So it's a different kind of crowd that you're going after. But I think if you're talking like in like in my experience, in general terms, when you're looking to go and get that first round of money, you're never going to get it from a VC or from a from a um, professional kind of like from institution or anything like that. No one that invests professionally, really. Yeah, you the names that uh, the average person would know, you know, when you're talking about people like Quadrant Private Equity, Sequoia Capital, um, yep. a lot of those really big names that you hear about because they invest in Facebook and Uber and things yep. like that. Those are the guys that Oliver is referring to when he says VCs and whatnot. They're really big guys who... And quite literally, their small funds. VCs is what venture capitalists. Venture capitalists. Yeah. Their uh, their investments don't really start until you're at the you know fifty plus million stage. A lot of those guys. That's the smallest, and they call those some of the micro funds. Yeah, exactly. And they and they'll write. I mean, in Australia, it's like slow, sort of scaled down, but that's right. They just won't look at you unless you're at, unless you're kind of in market operating or you're a scale up or or whatever. Um, and they also like I think VCs, venture capitals, venture capital firms, and also private individuals who act as VCs have a very kind of specific returns model. Like they, they'll only invest in, which is why it's so important who you're approaching. Cause if you're approaching a VC who only looks at hardware businesses or only looks at software as a service or only looks at business to business, um, business models, no business to consumer, um, they have very, very strict mandates, very strict yes. things they'll look at. Um, and if you're not, if you don't fit, yeah, the tick box, I mean, a lot of VCs, especially in this day and age, uh, you know, m- their business models are built on find a business who is profitable or, you know, just before profit, et cetera, and they need to scale up to make, you know, their margins work, but at scale, not at the level they're at. They need to hire another hundred staff, move to this X, Y, Z. And so it's really just, we need to put more fuel on the fire. That's what a lot of VCs look for. Mm. You just, they just have a lot of money and we'll give it to you if we can see that you need to jump from here to here. They're less about investing in an idea. Um, and the concept that you can turn that idea into something. And in that circumstance, you're mostly speaking to, you know, brokerage firms, obviously, um, or high net worths. Yeah, 
Yeah, you, well, exactly. And you talk to brokers to get access to high net worth people or angel investors who, who specialize in the space because it's just so high risk investing and in that early stage. how do you go about that? Like say you're someone who has this great idea for an app or whatever, you have no idea, you've never been in this world before. Is there like a website? Is there a business? Is it your yeah. network? I want to be clear before we answer that question that nine times out of 10, your idea is shit. Um, <laughs> and like you need to be That's aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be aware of that. Um, and that there's an enormous amount of work to do. Yeah. A lo- what I, and I get it all the time personally, but the last thing people want is for you to come and say, I have this great idea. Um, I just need a million dollars. And what I receive, I would say a minimum of a few times a week is someone who either says to me in person or says to me via DM or email that they have all these great ideas. If they just had an hour of my time, if they just had the agency, if they just had the money, they'd be Elon Musk or they'd be Mark Zuckerberg or they'd be whatever. And it's those things holding them back. And I always find 9.9 times out of 10, it's nothing to do with those factors. You've done no work to run down your concept. You've done no mapping out of what it actually is. And even if someone turned up tomorrow to write the check, you wouldn't be ready to take it. You know what I mean? And that was so important with Archer that the groundwork was very much done that the second the money hit the bank account, it was working. Mm. Yeah, it's hard because like the first thing you would do if you're going to go and talk to like, like to your question around like how, how you would go and actually get that done. I think the stuff you have to do beforehand is go and meet with lots and lots of people in like pitches that you expect won't work um, because you're going to get all this feedback from people and why they don't like it, why they do like it, what's not being explained properly in your deck, what you can't explain, what you you wouldn't have asked all the questions yourself. And how important is taking on feedback, even if someone's being like, they're criticizing your idea? Like how hard is it to put your ego aside and hear what people are suggesting to you? So like your baby. Well, I think it's really, obviously it's super important. Like you have to be able to do that because otherwise, like, I don't know. I, I think a lot of the criticism that you get is like challenging to accept because I think a lot of the time in those meetings, people want to provide feedback because they feel like they should be providing feedback to you. And so they're kind of trying to come up with something to tell you. And maybe they don't really believe this strongly and maybe they kind of do or maybe they don't. You don't really know. So if you take it all to heart and action everything, then you don't, you're actioning everything and that's just stupid. But I think you have to be open to the fact that other people are going to have ideas that might improve your business plan or your concept and also that it's your idea, your idea or your business is never going to be fully formed. Like you're always going to be in a position to take feedback. You've just got to accept the fact that some of the feedback is going to be rubbish. I think it also depends as well, especially in those circumstances where, you know, people are, it, it, your concept is so different, right? Like when you're pitching Archer and you're talking fintech, a lot of the rooms you're sitting in, people aren't understanding fully what the vision is. And, you know, explaining it to them is the first time they maybe have heard of this or the second time or their understanding has been something they've read in the AFR or something. Whereas, you know, when you go and sit in a room and someone says to you, we have the, new, the next Facebook. And I can't tell you how many props I have that say we're the next Uber, we're the next Facebook, we're the next Snapchat, we're the next et cetera, et cetera. And it feels like people think that works. You know what I mean? Like as if the investors sitting there being like, oh, this is my chance to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think the feedback has got to be triaged in those circumstances. Yeah. Like like I said, I have a lot of people who come to me and ask for advice. Just the other day I took a meeting on, on that exact basis. Um, and in those situations when I take a meeting, I only take a meeting with someone of an area that I understand. The advice that I'm giving and, you know, this is obviously, uh, you know, quite the egotistical statement, but the advice I'm giving is very valuable purely because I'm taking a meeting in an industry I understand very, very well. But there are sometimes when you're taking investor meetings with people who have no idea, so their feedback is irrelevant mm-hmm. to an extent. You know what I mean? There's, th- they'll make comments, and you've got to understand where the line is. Are you sitting in front of an expert in the space that you're trying to be, or are you sitting in front of someone who's heard it for the first time, and the knee-jerk reaction is? Why do we need a digital bank or what, you know what I mean? Why do I need that or why do I need that? Whereas people who pitch me the next, everyone, you know, it's the next Uber or whatever and you go, 
you know, there's X, Y, Z problems or you've done, you haven't done Y or you haven't done this, that feedback is far more important. Yep. But I mean, also if, if you're that wavering, like if you're going to meetings and you're getting feedback and you're walking away and deciding we need to change everything, how good was the idea? Exactly. You need to have an element of, um, commitment to what to what you're putting out there and that's why it's important to take lots and lots of meetings before you actually are ready to meet with someone who you really think might go for it and put something um valuable back to you because if you you got to yeah. practice the idea practice pitching it practice understanding the areas that you're not confident about um it's but that's the point right like and it's taking multiple meetings and it's you know it's it's i guess targeting meetings that make sense yeah and so whether that's you know, you're sitting in front of an investor, it's the conversation is complex. Mm. You're asking them for money, you're yep. explaining your concepts, there's so many different factors at play. You also need to be taking meetings where it's not asking for money, it's just asking for advice from experts in the field to allow your idea to form better mm-hmm. than it was before. But, um, you know, I mean, obviously throughout the growth of Archie, you've had a lot of, um, you know, meetings with successful people in the industry and whatnot. How have you found getting access to people of, you know, authority and, you know, I guess, knowledge. How, how do you go about that? How do we go about getting the meetings? Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously warm introductions help. Um, I think I've done a lot of cold emailing and actually that has worked to an extent as well. Like I know a lot of people say, oh, just send the email or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but they're getting a million emails. So, you know, there's a, every chance they won't look at it. But a lot of the stuff we've had happen is because of cold emails, but a lot of the more meaningful stuff has come from warm introductions. So spending time with one contact who you know can help you and then, you know, honestly looking for feedback from that person and trying to get them to put input in. Yes. And then when they really believe what you're doing and they really kind of feel like, yeah, this is a, this is something that, that yeah. could work here, they'll start offering you introductions to people. Like we've had introductions with really senior people in financial institutions and, and fairly long meetings with all of them. Yeah. Um, and that's come about because they take the meeting because someone they know has said, oh, it's worth your time yeah. meeting with this person. Um, and so they say, yeah, okay. And then that, and that it's leads so to another, to well. another, to another. I mean, a lot of times, and we've said this on this podcast, I think even before, it people, again, and I, I keep saying this, but because I get so many DMs about stuff like this, you start at the very top. So many people, I think that's the mistake you make. It's going to be very hard to get a meeting with CEO of X or person Y who's billionaire or this, that, and the other. It's often the person who you're ignoring and thinking isn't going to help you that ha- already knows them, that has the in, that has the contact, that makes sense. And you've got to spend time with people in the industry. You can't just turn up and then be like, well, I would like to meet with the CEO of ANZ Bank tomorrow. Why won't you take a meeting with me? Yep. He doesn't have time for you. Yep. You know what I mean? I've always said, this is a bit off topic, but I've always said it's fascinating how you can get access to people. Like for example, I spent a great time and done work with Niall Horan from One Direction. And the reason for that was because I knew Quade Cooper, who was a football player from Brisbane. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But Niall is a big rugby fan. Like, you know, there's, you'd never know who you're speaking to who may have access to the people that you need. Mm-hmm. And so it's never about just, unless your title is CEO or president or whatever it is, although these days, if that is your title, it's a good chance you're a fuckwit anyway. But, um, you know, if that is your title, th- they're not necessarily the first port of call. Yeah. You have to go through and, and meet, like you said, people in the industry and surround yourself more and more in it so that when your name does come up, it's not who is that. Yeah, I think also people tend to obsess about um, like the person they want to meet and they just want to meet that person because that's the person who's going to solve their problem. And so then they try and find someone who can intro them to that person. And I think in reality, the thing you should be asking is like, all right, I want to meet someone who, I want to meet someone who has these traits, not that particular person, but someone with these traits and then go to your network and say like, I want to meet 
do you know anyone who has those traits, who like is in this industry and potentially would invest and also would offer strategic value and insights to us? And then suddenly you've got a, a list of people who you actually do have a hope of going to have a conversation with. Yeah. Not just trying to go, does anyone know the CEO of this business? I really want to meet them. Yeah. Why? Like there's lots of people who could do, give you that same advice and have potentially have the same outcome unless there's a real reason. Of course. Um, so I found it more helpful just to go around and say to people who are involved in our business and say, look, we want to meet this type of person and we really need this type of skill set and we want to talk to that type of person. Does anyone know anyone? And then you find yourself in you know, unexpected meetings, but nonetheless helpful. Helpful, yeah. And that's, I think, you know, the, and correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously, you know, you're working in every day, but I think people underestimate the level of work that it takes in terms of just being fully embedded in every way, shape and form, meeting with people who are completely pointless. Yep. You know what I mean? You take meetings and it was a disaster. And then you meet this person, they were trying to sell you a piece of software that you didn't want anyway. And then yep. you, know, you end up, but at the end of the day, your name spreads more and more and more amongst the industry, amongst the group, that eventually it starts to sort of pay off at the other end. But mm-hmm. it's certainly a um, it's certainly a bit of a bitch. But um, so Archer has raised obviously quite a bit of money now and it's been through several stages. So the initial stages of the money that we raised was based off just personal contacts, yep. which was, you know, seed, if you will. Um, and that allowed us to sort of, to an extent, prove the concept, show something tangible. Yeah, put, put a team together, build proof of concept, that kind of stuff. And then, and, and that was done, in terms of the industry, that was done on virtually the smell of an oily rag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. In it terms wasn't of the money the that we raised and spent, oh, yeah. nothing. It was nothing. It nothing was compared to, like, it wouldn't be even be a drop in the bucket compared to others and the, and the money that others, in no. our industry and others, at our stage of the business. Um, it's in, incomparable. Like it's yeah, just not the same that was scale. a weekly burn for most of them. Our yeah. entire oh, operating budget. Yeah, it'd be hu- it'd be a couple of days burn. You know, yeah, like it'd be yeah crazy. Yeah, um, and then from there it became um, another raise after that, which was again mostly through personal contacts, and then it became an external raise through. Yeah, then brokers. we appointed someone to do a raise for us, and they yep. they raised obviously sizably, <laughs> considerably more money. Um, but yeah, it took us some time. I mean, that was a year, that was almost a year later, right? Yeah. That we were in the meetings doing that proper raise. And that was, that had been something that we had been trying to do for 12 months. Yeah. Like, and was that because, um, people just weren't getting the vision or what do you think it was? Um, I think it took a bit of time for the concept of like challenger banking, neo banking, neo financial services, whatever you want to call it. I think it took a bit of time for like that to make its way into kind of the mainstream of investing, like for people to, cause when we were in these meetings, you'd find yourself selling the concept and then you have to sell you and the team and then you have to sell your progress. And like it was, whereas now we only do the second two, we only sell the team and the progress. Whereas back then it was like, we had to explain what it was, you know, what was the, what was the industry? What were we trying to do? Whereas now people kind of get that already. So you don't have to really worry too much about that anymore. And so that was the real challenge. So I think time was helpful. Like just letting, just purely letting time pass and letting, you know, neo banks and all that kind of stuff make its way into like the vernacular of, early stage investment funds and they understand what it is. They understand the landscape, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Because then you can spend your time selling yourself and the team and your progress and what you want to do with the money and all that kind of stuff, which is obviously a much easier job because that you have control of yep. the industry and the validity of whether this is a good business play. You don't have control of, you can only, you can only talk to the stats and talk to the other businesses that are there. Um, and now that everyone knows those things and knows who those people are and knows that it's a big growing space, they kind of come to the meeting excited and they want to hear it from you. Whereas, you know, harder earlier. Yeah. This might be hard to answer, but I'm just trying to think of like a general person who doesn't know anything and wants to get involved in this kind of space. What do you do if you're like, you have your idea and how do you figure out sort of 
what sort of money value you want to get from people and what percentage of your business to give them? Like, how do you come up with these numbers? Unless you're, uh, I was going to have a more um, realistic outlook on this, but from my perspective, and because we we still have these discussions now on a weekly basis because, you know, more people are entering the business, etc. But from my perspective, in the earliest of days, you just benchmark yourself against everyone else. You look at what other people are doing and then you find the reality. So if someone is raising at an outrageous number and they're well progressed, the reason it's an outrageous number now is because there's less risk associated with that investment. Whereas when you're at idea concept, the entire thing is risk. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you can sell your idea at a multi-million dollar valuation is a complete facade. You know, and the, any stories that you hear of people doing that, generally speaking, the people who have written those checks, the founder is former head of something yep. crazy that was founded. And so everyone's like, the next thing they do is going to be worth, you know what I mean? It's that. But generally speaking, your idea is worth nothing. You have to prove it. And if you're asking for someone else's money to do that and having no real risk of your own, the percentage is going to go along with that. The person is going to want some sort of insurance that if, in fact, this does turn out, I need a decent piece of it. Um, But again, you should look at competitors in the space and see what are they raising out to give you some sort of scope, I would say, of kind of the industry and what everyone else is investing and at what level. So you've got an idea. But nine times out of the ten, I think the reason it doesn't work is because people ask for too much money. Yeah, at, they ask for too much money at not enough of a valuation. If you're going to be, and again, it changes based on your positioning. You know, you'll do a seed round, then you'll do an you're an A round, a B round, etc. However, that sort of plays out. But if you're at seed round, which is money basically before you've got anything to talk about, it's to to have a proof of concept built. If you're asking for enough money to be comfortable, you're asking for too much, is my mm. opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think that's right. I think. Um People generally ask for too much money and, and they don't really have a plan of what they're going to do with it. And it's like, we ask, well, what is this going to be used for? And you say working capital. Well, that's that's silliness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of like how you come up with evaluation, how much you should be asking for, I agree you should be asking for far less than what you think. Um, or only only the bare minimum of what you think you can get by on. Yeah. And, and with a plan to go back to market. And in terms of valuation, I think what you said is right. Like it's, it's really, it's a competitive marketplace, right? So you look at what everyone else is valuing themselves at. What, what milestones are they promoting? what um, what of those milestones that they've got, how, how many of those have you hit? And if you've hit the same milestones and some more, then maybe you're worth more, you know, but you're never going to be able to come up with a, like no one's going to get an accountant in and work out what the value of the idea is or whatever. It's just not going to work. Definitely not. Because no matter what the accountant says, it's a lie. Yeah. It's either over or undervalued. Like there's no, there's yeah, no and also it's a marketplace, right? Like if, if someone wants to, there's only so many, like if you look at our industry um, and in like, you know, challenger financial services or whatever, neo financial services, it's, there's only so many horses to back. Like there's yes. only so many and they're only raising so much money. Um, so you've got to balance the fact that it's only an idea and you, it's all execution and there's high risk here with the fact that you actually do, if you really do believe in yourself and your team, then you should back yourself into a good valuation because because that's that's a fair and reasonable valuation. So I think it's just about trying to be fair and reasonable and not seeing what you can get away with. Yeah, absolutely. 100%, which I think is the the market's been sort of led that way to an extent to yeah. just sort of try and raise. And I think the market to an extent, maybe not as much in Australia, but more in the US, is it's flooded with a lot of investment in garbage ideas. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt about it. And what are some mistakes people make once they've got the money? So we've seen a lot of businesses get a lot of money and then they go under because they spend all the money on flashy 
event launches mm. or too many stuff. Well, the first thing we bought was we bought two ping pong tables. <laughs> <laughs> In that <And> perspective. Three. <laughs> <laughs> it was a ping pong table, which was, uh, which was annoying, really, because it didn't fit the back of the Ferrari. Yeah. You know? <laughs> had, to, had to sell them at a massive discount. <laughs> so what are some mistakes that people make? Like, how do you know how to spend your money wisely? and what? Because any business, when you're starting, it is hard to know bringing on staff in order to grow or can yeah. you be burning money? I'll answer this not from an Archer perspective because I wouldn't have a clue because I, I wasn't a part of that really. Um, but from the business that we have perspective, the difference that I have is that the money was mine. Do you know what I mean? If I ran out, I was broke. The thing was over. I was back to getting a job. Like, So you spend the money differently then because it's your own sort of self on the line, if you will. Whereas I think in a lot of circumstances like this, you can get people who raise a lot of money and it's like it's other people's money. It's just money in the bank so that's there to be more spent. Reckless with it? Is that what you mean? I don't know if it's reckless. I just don't think. No, the, there's as much respect placed on the fact that this is somebody else's hard-earned money. Risky. Yeah, because it's it's a bank account full of money and whatnot. Whereas I know that Archer has approached it very much as if it was every penny was you know owned by the people there, um, and you know th- it could be gone tomorrow type of vibe. But I know that that's the difference from our business that because there was no external capital that came into it, every dollar had to work. You know, every dollar had to work like 20 because that's how it had to work. You had no choice. Whereas I think a lot of startups you see, especially in the US market and out of Silicon Valley now and even from LA and some Texas stuff I'm reading, it's just it's insane the money that they're raising and spending on, you know, it was hot for a minute for, for staff to have these amazing offices and all these perks and benefits and all the rest of it. It's like, yes, that's great, but it can't be ancillary to delivering a product and, and doing what we're trying to do here and burning millions of dollars on staff entitlements when you've got no product. You know what I mean? It's crazy talk. And when you look at some of the big success stories, like was it Slack that was actually a game? Yeah, Slack was a video game first. Slack was a video game and then the business pivoted and built what is now the preeminent communication tool of, I would say, the startup world yep. primarily, um, but now spreading everywhere else. Um, you know what I mean? It's it's about that. You know, it's, you're still there to do a job, and I think that when you approach the money as extra money or just I don't I don't know. I think there's a level of respect you don't quite have for money when it isn't your own. Um, and I mean, Archie was originally funded by money that was as close as being our own as could possibly be. I mean, the people yeah. who put in are very close to us, so it was virtually the same thing. Yeah. Um, but I think that's probably for a lot of people when they do raise money, it's you know it's the same as if you've got to treat it like it's your own cash to an extent. Mm. I think, yeah, if you raise, where a lot of people raise money, like if someone raises $10 million, they're going to spend $10 million. You yeah. Know? Someone raises $5 million, they'll spend five. If you raise 20, you'll spend 20. Whereas like about the money that it was going to cost to solve that problem was probably like you know, two and a half, three million million, $3 million. But you're going to put whatever money you have yeah. towards it. And so I think that's probably like a common mistake that, that I would see other businesses doing. And, and, you know, you often have the temptation to do it yourself, right? Like even at Archer, like we'll say, oh, there's a problem. You know, we could solve this problem by appointing X firm to do X work and they'll just solve the problem for us. But then you kind of think, well, yeah, but also we have the skills in house to do that and we could, we could just do that ourselves and we'll just yeah. do it. We'll cobble it together and make it happen. Whereas if you've got no financial pressure, you know, you can go back to market and raise more money because the conditions are right and whatever else, then you just start, you spend it. You just throw yeah. the money around. And it's that like, and people like, I'm sure the founders and CEOs who make those decisions would stand hand on heart and say, I thought that was the right decision for the business. And they absolutely would, but you're going to run out of money much quicker yeah. And and making your life more comfortable isn't necessarily the um, optimum outcome for investors. They kind of want to just see that you're working towards a product and you're you're hitting the yeah. critical milestones. And you know, just because you had 
this amount of money is spare and you could throw it at this consultant to do whatever job or you could buy this extra piece of software or whatever to make yeah. something more efficient like do stuff manually you know if you need to like it yeah. doesn't doesn't you know, and that, i mean that's even happened in our industry i mean we've been approached by people before who are even in startups and they've come to us and said we want to do a launch we want to spend this and whatnot and i've said to them i wouldn't spend it and i wouldn't do it you know even for our own brand james same thing you know we looked at um you know launch events and things like that for certain products use and whatnot and on closer assessment of the money it's just it's not the best use of the money it's it just isn't um it'd be great for ego and great for a great night no doubt but it's just not right but when you think about i know how you know some of our meetings run and whatnot these founders come in and say we have this much money to spend so you spend it mm. you know what i mean yep. you know and that's because you're coming to hire an agency whose job is to do x and y and whatever but you know it's did you need what was the purpose of that you know unless it's delivering against raising more money the profile of business or you know ultimately building the product or downloads or whatever it might be it just doesn't make a lot of sense yeah it's a strange sort of um industry though <laughs> as a whole startups in general because the whole thing is just like this rat race that never ends yeah and it's also such a massive spectrum of of like yes. some people just get money and they're just absolute morons and they'll go and waste it on whatever and get nothing out of it and other people have the best intentions and make silly mistakes and other people have you know make the dumb decisions but get lucky because they turn out to be the right decisions and other people make a very conservative with their money and make it last a long time but get nowhere and so it's very hard I and mean, it's so complicated but um but yeah i think if the, the the broader messaging being if you raise a million dollars if someone raises a million dollars they'll spend a million dollars no doubt about that all right so because we like to give tangible tips what are your top tips for people who are trying to start a startup um i think again it's on the spectrum here of industry um i think if you're studying anything like um something that's going to need money not like a business like ours okay if it's like a business that needs to raise money i think that you need to uh find somebody who knows nothing about this idea you've been banging on about for the last five years um and sit down and pitch them the concept and then you'll very quickly see all the mistakes you've made because you've not thought about it well enough all the questions they ask shows the holes in you your concept um, and they need to go away and build it out it needs to be built into something like you need to you need to know it better than anyone knows it. you need to know the industry you need to know the competitors you need to know why you need to know every answer before it's asked because that's what's expected of someone who is the, a founder and who is a startup ceo um, that's what you've got to offer if you go into any room and can't answer the questions you won't raise money because they'll tell their friends and when you're relying on high net words a lot of them know each other brokers etc all talk it can very quickly so the and i always say this about everything we always talk about when we give tangible tips but if you think you're ready to raise money next week i guarantee you're probably six months away like it's you, you need to spend so much more time on developing it and i mean i can confidently say i mean archer began as a completely different business when we first discussed it at um bumbles <laughs> um and evolved substantially from there into what it is now and i'm sure it'll continue to evolve but um you know it needs to be tested against people's thoughts and you know and don't be wavered if it's some people are going to be detractors and whatnot but yeah. it needs to be tested against people what they think and what they know and blah 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 i would i would go if i had my time over and was like what's the most efficient way to start this business i think what i would do is first like call some consultants or like um people who aren't going to believe they work with people who professionally do bill for their time in who are in your industry and consult in your industry and go and have a coffee with them and sit with these people and not worry about sounding like an idiot and just ask them all the dumb questions you have about yeah. how this stuff works and how it goes and what you should be doing. And then 
treat them all as practice meetings and like just get, and then you learn and learn and learn yourself and then build this mo- build the business model out yourself yeah and then when you work into your for- first actual meeting yeah. you know all the questions because you've already been asked them by these people 100 um, percent, and that's people in the industry and it's it's i guess a lot harder for you as well because you didn't come from this world no certainly from regulation and whatnot perspective but in terms of the actual knowledge whereas i think there's so many people who it's i've got the greatest idea for a startup social media this and that and whatnot and you think like it's it's so hard to get off the ground um and in situations again i mean i'll mirror what i said before the other thing is learn the other top tip is learn to know who you're sitting in front of and why you should or shouldn't listen to them if you're at christmas dinner and aunt Sue's says that's (laughs) terrible what are you doing pass the cake she's not the person to believe in terms of the context of the style that you've got but if you're sitting in front of judgment she wants the cake (laughs) she wants the cake but i think that if you're sitting in front of someone who's a true expert and they say to you like you've massively overlooked this you don't get to walk out of that meeting and be like that person has no idea yeah check your ego at the door with the absolutely check your ego at the door but also just again if you're walking to a meeting to discuss your startup and that meeting could be with family it can be with friends it can be whoever it is in any context where you're going in and talking about your startup you need to consider the fact of who is the person and what information are they offering that I should or shouldn't take? Aunt Sue's can tell you if your app is targeted at 55-year-old women and she tells you that she doesn't like the idea and wouldn't download it, there's a problem. But if she's telling you that the banks are going to eat you alive and what's the point, she's the wrong person. To, you know what I mean? Everyone has a valuable opinion to give, but you need to put it into the context of why you're taking that opinion on board. I just want to ask one more question because not I'm assuming with these startups, not everything giving percentage away is always for money. Sometimes you can give ownership or percentages away of your business for expertise and services, I assume. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So I mean, boards of know? directors, um, yeah. you know, obviously you can um, you can give equity to have someone on the board of directors who offers you information or knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise have. And then as an extension of that, which we don't have, but as an extension of that, you can have an advisory board, yep. which isn't a strictly legal board. So when we refer to our board of Archer, it's the, the legal board yeah. for... Um, like statutory board. Statutory board for um, legal purposes. But they are also offering, you know, some nice. of the people on that board have a percentage based on the knowledge they bring. But then also that you can have an advisory board. Yeah. A group of people who aren't legally speaking because there are some legal um you open yourself up legally being on a board for um, commercial purposes there are legal things alongside that whereas an advisory board not really so that's the difference between the two but it could also be as simple as like a celebrity wants to come on board and because they've got profile not necessarily money that can help you with you know oh, marketing and stuff and they can get percentage for that how do you weigh up like that kind of thing um, look, again, it's it's very difficult to, to discuss, especially when we're talking about the discussion of, of non-specific industry. You know, like you know, having someone on board who wants to work with you in certain spaces is going to be super handy. You know, there'll be some people who are loaded and have all loaded friends and they're not famous and you've never heard of them and all the rest of it, but why not give them equity if they can go and pull in $10, 15000000 million? You know, there's... You, Again, you're, you're just balancing value. That's all it is. It's is it a, it's the same decision everyone makes every day when they go to Woolworths and they decide to buy something. Is the Are these biscuits worth the $7 I'm about to exchange for them or should I buy the home brand ones that are $4? It's an exchange of something and you need to decide whether or not you think it is worth what you're offering up. Yep. But and it's important to note, do you think that sometimes expertise is just as important as money? Often more. Yeah. Yeah, agree. But I think you just got to ask what you what you would pay for that expertise. But I think that it's also you've got to consider, I guess the the source of the information. You know, like there's there's so many people with similar information out there, right? Like the knowledge isn't um, there's not one guy with the knowledge. There's so many different people who have 
similar expertise and knowledge and if one person wants 10% for it someone out there might just be willing to have a coffee with you because they feel like that's the right thing to do so don't um, certainly don't uh, knock on the first door and then hand away whatever they're asking for was that it you think you guys have gotten everything off your chest there you want to talk about that's quite a bit of information (laughs) (laughs) we have no time for that All right. so that's pretty much it thanks for dropping in Oliver we appreciate you being our first guest of season 3 Oliver, also, if you haven't listened, was on last week's episode of Literally Nobody Cares, giving up some funny tales with him and Sam as they grew up. He's a professional CEO, um, but he also could be the owner of a peacock. You should hear more about that on... Listen to more about that on the Little Nobody Cares podcast. <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Spin Studio to stay up to date with the Spin Life. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at Spin & Co. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.